Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Today, Janelle and I are with Reverend Dr. Leslie King from First Presbyterian Church of Waco, Texas. And uh, before we get started today, if you like this episode already, just do this right now. Stop it. Stop it because you're going to like it. You're going to love it. Share it online. That's how we get more listeners. Go over to iTunes and give it a five-star Send it to your friends. We're at Brew Theology on Instagram and Facebook, Brew underscore on Twitter. Also, if you want to start a chapter, if, you, if you're like, man, these people do some fun things, and I want to do some fun things. I want to drink some beer or kombucha, maybe a hop water. It doesn't matter. I want to go to a pub with some friends. I want some zesty, brutastic curriculum. We've got all that for you. Go online. You can email us, Ryan or Janelle at brewtheology.org. And that website's pretty easy. So all things, hashtag Brew Theology. Find us out there. Uh, but today, this conversation that we're having, we had with Leslie here in Waco, Texas, a while back. If you are a pastor or you work in a church, then this uh, this episode is not only just for you. I think this is something that will dig deeper into your the depths of your bones, if you will. I, I as somebody in Janelle as well, somebody who's worked in the church, has been involved in the church for the entirety of our lives. Uh, this this one did a number on me in a good way. So. I'm just saying this in advance. You won't be disappointed, but please send this to your pastor friends. I think pastors need to hear this first and foremost. So without further ado, Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Leslie King, she began her service to First Pres in Waco in 2012. Mm -hmm. She received her BA from Kansas University, Rock Chalk Jayhawk, and her Master's of Divinity from McCormick Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Chicago. Uh, in 2010, she completed her Doctor of Ministry at St. Paul School of Theology in Kansas City, Missouri, with an emphasis in spirituality and organizational change. A little shout out to the Chiefs there, right? Not, right. That, you care, not that you care at all, Leslie, right? You're not a sports uh, my person. My husband appreciates all of it. <laughs> uh, since September of 2020, that was a, that was a fun year, wasn't it? it was uh, a she's now a, a yoga instructor <laughs> with Spirit Fair Yoga. And my vinyasa practice, is that how you say it? Yeah. It's exactly she, how you say it. Yeah. She is a member of Yoga Alliance. I, now you're making me feel guilty here. She, I, need to, I need to get back into yoga. She enjoys leading yoga flows for the youth and adults of the church, Lucky Church. Her, her particular interest is in yin and restorative yoga as it relates to spiritual well-being. Wow. Piano, look at you. The piano competency is slowly emerging. You're, you're a musician. That's it brings actually, you a lot. Of, it, it, yeah, that's actually a lie in my bio. My <laughs> piano is terrible, but it still meets a deep need. It, my husband closes the door when I practice. Uh, so all these things, I'm like, I need to get a piano. I need to do yoga. This is helpful for me as I look at your bio. Uh, and and Leslie has been married to DJ King since November mm-hmm. of 1996, and they enjoy watching their three young children, Cody, Katie, and Claire, make their way in the world uh, with the menagerie of stray animals that sounds like my aunt (laughs) the kings are glad to call waco home there are a few of us who do call waco home i'm one of them um and now in uh hey i'm glad to be in the city with you i've only been here i can't believe it's almost been three years but yeah i met leslie uh several months ago i thought i need to have this person at the pub and uh, the world needs to hear her so it was so fun yeah you've made an impact in three years so thanks for being here Thank you very much. So we do like to start off with people's spiritual background, their pedigree. So just briefly, uh, what did you, uh, what you grow up as, if anything? And then yeah. what did you slowly become? How would you identify yourself today? So uh, it's kind of boring. I was born a Presbyterian um, and am still a Presbyterian. So uh, my parents, though, uh, were Southern Baptists. And when they met, they became Presbyterian. So my entire extended family is Southern Baptist, and it really um, has been a source of strength. And they've certainly adapted and responded as I've come into ministry and been in ministry. Um, So the spiritual journey was probably a pretty heady one. Uh, I, my undergraduate was in psychology and I was sort of sitting around a room, um, of college students, we were on a mission trip, and we were, you know, had the Bible out in front of us, and we were talking Bible, and I thought, I won't be happy if I'm not doing this sort of thing for the rest of my life, and so then I went and 
told my dad, Southern Baptist, then Presbyterian dad, you know, hey, I think I want to go to seminary. He said, hey, what are the first five books of the Bible? And like any good Presbyterian, I couldn't do it. And he said, so why don't you go figure that out? And then tell me if you want to go to seminary. So I actually have a great collegial relationship with my dad. He's a dad and a colleague, and we have a lot of fun. Um, but just a really ordinary story, really. Is that kind of what you're looking for? That's that's great. So uh -huh. in, in in some ways, like when he asked you the first five books of the Bible, as a good Baptist, I, I grew up as a Baptist. Of course, we can sing those. But then it comes with the flip side of like how we interpret it at times. And some of that's a little dangerous. We need each other. As if it fell out of the sky, right yeah. to us in our lives. But we need each other. <laughs> yeah. Presbyterians yes. need Baptists, Nazarenes. Very true. Baptist yep. Presbyterians. Yep. Yep. All right. So uh, today's uh, conversation is titled, uh, now the people who have seen The Matrix may get a little excited here, but it's Worship, Matrix, and Human Experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm always a bit shocked, really, when anyone says that they have not seen The Matrix, and I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but I think it's one of the greatest and probably most revolutionary movies of its time. But to start off, like, tell us why you like to play with that matrix analogy as, as we enter into this conversation about worship. I'm so glad that you're going to let me confess something, which is I've seen the matrix. I see the matrix. I will see the matrix again. I never feel like I capture all that is in that movie. It lives in pieces in my head. Um, but I think one of the one of the key images of that movie for me is the way they are so artistic about longing, the longing that human beings have, and the belief in, um, really the belief in the matrix, if I can say that. And it's such a nice contrast to, you know, our Western individualism which is certainly an important part of our experience, but it's not the only part of our experience. And sometimes I think that the interconnectedness of people is something that is more difficult to talk about, um, but is really the leading edge of some of the faith issues, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, there, there's the, the invitation to question Right. Mm -hmm. It's something that uh, I think maybe some people out there, uh, I know specific, I don't know if I was truly able to question at all mm -hmm. or um, like, what is it that you believe and why do you believe this? It's like, no, this is, this is what you're supposed to believe, you know? Mm -hmm. um, all right. So getting into, getting into this integrative worship idea. Uh, mm -hmm. So let's, let's just start off with what is, what's your working definition of integrative worship? Um, I think that's, it's a good place to start. Sure. Um, integrative worship is for, for me, um, really the assumption that people are bringing a lot of raw material with them, a lot of experience, a lot of uh, belief that they've contemplated as they've come up into their various experiences, and they're bringing lots of raw material into worship. And our job in worship, in order to glorify God, is to build enough space, enough rich space, where people can do the bringing together of what feels like a lot of different pieces over maybe the individual days of the week, but certainly over the months and the years of their life. And so integrative worship for me is a, is a workshop model where we intend to be provocative, believing in the capacity of people to bring those pieces together into a meaningful whole. So the, those pieces, like, for instance, like just uh, you say you have your liturgy, you have your songs, you have your sermon, you have, yeah. so it, it, for you, like, is there anything that it seems limited for some people? Are you, everything is on the table. We're just going to see what sticks or do you have, no, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm that, jumping ahead yeah. of myself. I think it would sure be nice if we were that bold, but I think that people come to church in part for some stability. Right. Uh, and so we're definitely working within a constrained uh, we're definitely working within a traditional constraint of liturgy, mm -hmm. but we use the sermon and the scriptural um, anchors for the sermon as the foundation for the worship service. So the service is thematic, but we try 
to keep those themes at an archetypal level so everybody can access them. Yeah, and that, that can be tricky with people of all ages and different places of their faith journey in there too. It can be. Um, and so I'm sure that like any church, we have some Sundays that run more intense than other Sundays. And um, But you sort of know if people have so, sort of slipped into that workshop um, space and uh, they usually lock in and you can tell they're working. Mm-hmm. And so it really doesn't matter if your theme is the theme they end up working on, but has your theme been provocative enough that whatever is floating uh, and needing their attention gets gets their attention? And I know how vague that sounds. I'm happy to try to be more specific. An example would be that you know you're 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 taking the theme of being lost, mm-hmm. archetypal theme, very Christian theme. And you're working that in such a way that at the end of the worship service, a woman comes up and says, you know, I don't remember what you were preaching about, but the prayer of confession that had the word lost in it reminded me of three weeks ago when I was walking down the alley by Nymphas and a um, black man surprised me. He was sitting by the dumpster and I jumped back. And I am not a person who believes that I would jump back, but I jumped back and then I did not say anything to him and I walked hurriedly by. And for me, when they say that, they're sharing with me what they've workshopped based off the provocativeness of a prayer. And so is that helpful? Yeah, yeah. It is always surprising too when people can come up to you after a service and then you're like, I didn't, I didn't intend for that message to go through to you but it was definitely in this overarching theme and it's interesting that they took this or that out of it but if it's based on that that play of their own life that's uh that's hopeful you know because it should it should reflect the the real world and not just be some silo that we plug and play well and and the belief really the the assumption really is that everybody's longing to work those pieces everyone Mm. has a longing to make those connections about why this happens and what it means when we disappoint ourselves and what it means when we exhilarate ourselves um, with our ethics or our interactions. Um, So the workshop model of integrative worship assumes people are doing this all the time Mm. and that we're building space for that sacred kind of work. Right. Yeah. Setting the table for people. That's, Mm -hmm. uh, that's good. So, um, how do you, um, how do you invite them into this posture? Um, because it sounds like that's something you're doing intentionally is, is to encourage them to engage in, or this, this new way. We're not explicit about, I mean, there's a portion of our bulletin that says, welcome to integrative worship but we don't speak to it. And it's just there if you want to read it. Again, it's just, we assume this is very organic for people. Okay. Okay. So the very beginning of the worship service is a reminder that um, in whatever way we've arrived, it's good enough. This is a place to be authentic. um, And we say, welcome home, children of God. You know, just, I mean, many churches have that sort of welcome. Right. the the liturgy is what we count on being a cue and there's some weakness in that I mean we're counting on people reading well (laughs) we're counting on you know sight I mean there's some ways in which we could improve what we're doing um a really important part of the service is when children bring forward what we call a spirit box and they've taken that box home and they've put things in it that only they know what's in there And that's the source of our discussion with our children is them saying, yeah, this is, this is my stuff. This is what I'm thinking about. And we're reflecting on what they've brought. So it is very uh, relational and responsive. It's improvisational. And uh, again, it's trying to tie into whatever the archetype is in that box. Yeah. Um, So sometimes we're above the heads of the children but we are in the spirit uh, with them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sometimes that spirit box catapults over developmentally the minds of the kids and arrives to the adults, but the kids are still seeing their things 
being the object of what is deep reflection. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, people um, really people really like that. They like it if you say something profound, and they like it when the kids stump you and you don't have anything to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which kids can do in they these can. things. Yeah, they sure can. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'd love to dive into some of what you talked about at Brew Theology and um, have you kind of share for us some of these um, guide, I guess, I don't know if you would call them guidelines or uh, guardrails, something like that, but you speak of caution when it comes to worship. Um, And the first one that I have here is that integrative worship is cautious when making naked assertions about God or God's character. Um, Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, you know, and at this point, I'm very mindful of anybody that might be listening. Um, so it's probably, it probably, so I think one of the temptations in my own ministry is to have something to say about God. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, we're sort of leaning into scripture, counting on the fact that scripture is accurate, which there was a whole lot of deconstruction about that in the late 70s through the through the 90s. Um, and we're leaning into scripture and we're trying to provide what we understand to be the essential characters of God. And I just think it's a really difficult thing to pull off. So some of the some of it's just in the syntax of we imagine, we understand, um, you know, it builds space in the language to really allow God to breathe a little bit. Um, But I do think it's an important caution to talk about what is tenable and not what is untenable. So there are are things that are said about God that are untenable, in my opinion. Um, Do you need an example of that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I don't want to do, but I'll do it. So, yeah, I mean, only only because I don't want to, you know, hurt people or make people feel defensive. I think one of the things that's untenable is to say that God has a plan. Mm. Um, I think what we are trying to say when we say that is that I am experiencing meaning in my life. And the only thing I can imagine is that that comes from God and my partnership with God. And I think that is such a genuine sentiment. Yeah. But to say God has a plan then requires lots of intellectual gymnastics mm-hmm. when the plan is heartbreaking or um when the when the life story is riddled with injustice um so i think that's an example of what's untenable um whenever mental gymnastics are required to substantiate an assertion about God's character, it may be more important to say less about God and more about the human longing, more about right. the condition. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's, it's more helpful as opposed to a, a propositional words that we have, I guess, in the Western world have been taught to speak of God, systematic theology, blah, blah, blah. It's to, to use your phrase. <laughs> it's, sorry, I, I, this, is, this is a insider joke here because leslie does the blah 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 thing but you know what i'm talking about we, we've been yeah, trained yeah. to say god is this god is this what about uh using more like po- theopoetics uh analogies uh, metaphors things like is that more helpful i think it's more suggestive i think it i think it uh builds space for the workshop yeah. i do but i but i also think systematic theology has its place i mean i think that I think systematic theology at its best, before it's even systematic, is trying to say to us, not unlike the Old Testament, what do you think of this? Look mm. at this mess. Look at this intensity. What, Leslie, what do you think about this? Um, and so I think systematic theology at its best is part of a conversation. And at its worst, it's the thing we download and think is right. Right. I think yes. most feel, I think most really brilliant theologians are trying to have a conversation. They're not trying to be the thing that is authoritative on their own. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that that leads us to scripture. And um, you talk about integrative worship is careful about predetermined decisions about scripture and its canon. So um, it's obviously related. That's how one of the the ways in which we come to know uh, or experience God or have longings of God is, is through 
these these books, these letters, these poems. Um, can you talk more about how that fits into your approach and, and the caution that perhaps clergy should be cautious about? Yes, I think um, I think there has been moralizing of scripture that gets in the way of the scripture itself. Not that scripture is not moral, but the moralizing of it can really get in the way of a text. Um, you know, one of the ways that one of the resurrection texts gets eclipsed is, you know, Gospel of John, 20th chapter, 1 to 18. Um, Mary's upset. Everybody's been to the tomb. Mary's crying. Mary mistakes him as a gardener. And you've got tradition and you've got lots of commentary that just roll over that. And yet scientifically, we know that when you cry, two things happen. You are comforted and you are clearing the way for your own thinking and perception. People will say after a good cry, I see things differently now, or I just needed a good cry or whatever. And so the tradition of interpreting that text has been that Mary got it wrong and thought he was a gardener, but maybe Mary got it right. And he absolutely is a gardener, the greatest cultivator of our life, the greatest cultivator of creation that there that can be imagined. Maybe she got it exactly right. So I think that there's ways in which traditional interpretation gets in the way of a text. And what we want are clergy and people that really say, um, you know, where my imagination gets hung up on a text or where, um, yeah, where my imagination gets hung up on a text, I'm going to claim authority to, to investigate that and not mm. get old yeah uh is there like a play a little bit of like a playful midrash too when you start thinking of of these texts that you have that um where we already have these ideas about what it says versus like how do i fit myself into this story and perhaps what could i be seeing through their eyes and i i, I feel like in so many ways not that our jewish brothers and sisters get this right and we get it wrong but i i do think there's a lot to learn from that tradition Mm -hmm. that I think I, at least I, I didn't grow up with and wasn't trained in. And I'm starting to, to glean more of that over the last decade plus. But yeah, I, and I, I, and I think Christ, that, Christians needing midrash is my, that's, that's, what I'm, that's my, that's my well, take I home think, on this one. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And what's in my mind about midrash is that that too was dialectical yeah. as it emerges into something that is more concrete or written. But I don't know if that's accurate, but that's the way I imagine it. And and then, you know, I think this, one of the moves I make as an interpreter of scripture is I just go ahead and say to myself, why not identify with the perceived bad guy? Why not just do that every time? Because that allows me to minimize my assumptions mm -hmm. if I am the villain. And I think sometimes there's a temptation that the church aligns with the, with the, with the virtuous yeah or we're not we're, we're or if we get to the bad character of our flaws or attributes then it's on them it's never it about is. us yeah. yes it becomes an object lesson yeah peter and did it, that but i could never do that right and so <laughs> we it becomes an object lesson in instead of keeping us as the subjects of the dilemma yeah and if we're the subjects of the dilemma we're not going to assume very much it's a very vulnerable place to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, why do you, or do you have some ideas about why, especially in America, there's this tendency to just go with literalism, to just read the text and treat it like we understand it and that we've got it all figured out versus delving into this kind of dynamic, integrative approach to scripture? Um, well, we have a great tradition of, you know, the cowboy and the conqueror and the great adventure that comes in to set it all right. So why not also domesticate the text? Mm. Um, so I do think that the church has rewarded people for memorizing and having prowess and getting it right. I'm a Presbyterian that has my youth group do sword drills. I, you know because that competency is a really important foundation for critical thinking and the adventure that follows. But we arrest our development on trying to win those competitions or get it right mm. or, or pull the word as a substantiation of a position. And these are, these are simply domestications of the text. Wow. 
that kind of puts Bible quizzing, Bible quizzing was what we called it, puts it in a whole different light. But it's so important to do it. Presbyterians forfeit this. We say we're not going to be Baptist. We're not going to do the sword drills. And so then what we have are kids who don't know how to get around Mm. the book. Mm. We don't know the first five books of the Bible. So so we have got to honor what, what really is a solid practice, which is how do you have command of the book without domesticating it? How do you love it enough to swim in it, but not try to make it a swimming pool? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and there is no one, maybe the Nazarenes, there's no one like the Southern Baptists who educate on Bible competency. Yeah, we don't, we don't. We have that for Bible quizzing, like, and there are people that are very good at that, but it's not universal. And then the 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 other th- I'm getting a little excited, so I'll stop after this. That's okay. The, the the other thing that happens is that we depend on the academy to tell young people more factual things, and the church should be responsible for helping people manage um, or integrate. Would be my way of saying it integrate uh the literary historical sociological components that have contributed to the book yeah not the word but the book so that the word can be released which is what we want right that's what we want people to lock into but we've we've tried to domesticate the book right and and everybody sort of knows it's a sham but it's really hard work to reverse engineer it. Yeah, yeah. There was a great NPR program about a progressive woman who went in to live with a more evangelical congregation for a year and her life sort of blew up when it happened. And a bunch of her reality became the very things that they preached against. And her experience was that they loved her so well, even though she was not the model of what they had expounded. I mean, people know what to do if they're in a solid enough relationship with another human being. Yeah. Abuse and neglect aside. Yeah. Yeah. But man, they're good at letting that text get in between loving people well and living out what it says. Yeah. Again, I mean, if we're going to make authorities out of systematic theologians and privileged concepts over experience, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any um, any words for people that have deconstructed that are trying to reconnect with the text? Because many times, at least in my experience and observation, the text gets moved away from it's too painful there's a longing sometimes to re-engage, but, but how to do that is really hard, even though they have all the historical and sociological context, but then getting back to that text gets really difficult. Yeah, it just really depends if they're curious enough, I think. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds like more pressure on a victim, but there's not, I, I don't think there's good ways to coerce that. I think or, and you're not suggesting coercion. No. Um, I mean, mostly what you compete with in the local church is the underlying mental, uh, you know, kind of statement that's going on in people's head, which is, it's just church. Right. Yeah. Somehow it's, it's only curiosity that gets beyond that, I think. Yeah. That's why it's so important to be provocative. Push and draw. Well, the- well, push boundaries a little bit and to draw in to the experience, like come with me as we explore what's here. Well, if I were to, uh, you know, maybe, maybe less push boundaries and maybe more demonstrate, um, demonstrate conversations at the edge. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So the, the text, we could talk about the text for a long, I have so many other questions, but I know we got to continue on. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I have all kinds of things I want to talk. We can have a whole conversation about different books of the Bible later. All right, but regarding the the, the musical uh, liturgical aspects, the hymns, if you will, uh, within your tradition or any tradition for that matter, uh, can you can you speak about the ways in which perhaps the 
specifically the the music components could transcend even the text or speak speak to it within it around it um yeah what 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 would your cautionary thing be with people who uh, who are just plug and play or i mean like hey here what's the sermon okay i got this and then they start playing these songs what's often we think it's just easy it's just i'm a it's, i call them dj we, we could be a dj for a sunday and that's what a lot of worship pe- pastors think they are which is like oh there's so much more than that so i continue on that one please so i might not know as much about that tradition but yeah do i have a caution about music I'm, in that list uh you, you do just know it more in in general about um how so, we handle how we handle that yeah, yeah i mean the way we do it here yeah. is you know we're a music team and we select all the hymns we also do a hymn survey of the congregation and what we learn every time we do that is the more novel interesting hymns are not what people love to sing they love to sing the familiar which is very is something you would anticipate but we try to uh, select music that is provocative in lyric um, but also deeply grounding in their experience and so that's really hard so yeah um, if, if if people want to sorry to interject here but if, if you're saying they want the familiar but they can't, they don't believe the words that they're singing. How often is there that disconnect? I don't know because what people say is, um, I don't resonate with the words of that hymn, but when I sing it, I'm with my dad again. Hmm. I don't pretend to understand music's effect, but I know that it's so significant. It's more significant than anything that's written or read. Yeah. People are more likely to to go away singing a song there uh i don't know listening to the sermon in their head again yeah, yeah they like, used I, to for, I forgot what she said after five minutes but i remember no, that's the song right. that i sang no that i mean they forget and they don't if it's deep yeah. enough the, the point is that they're that they're spun off to do their own work with god mm-hmm. and that is not just solitary work but you know involves their community but the music um you know we so we'll i they get my sermon texts for the entire month, the scripture, the theme, and then we debate about hymns. I really want to use this hymn for the lyrics. Okay, Leslie, but that's a really crappy tune. Nobody's going to end up feeling it. And so we spend once a month, an hour getting the four weeks lined out. And then sometimes we have to say, wow, we really missed that. Um, but mostly it works because I think primarily because of the debate, because we tried to lock in with each other as a music team about what to do. And maybe I'll really like something as a hymn and they'll say, you're insane. We're not doing that as a hymn, but we will do it as an anthem. We'll give it to the choir. They're more skilled. They can pull it off and we'll give people that experience, you know, blah, blah, blah. How, so how, uh, how much Liberty do you all have in your in your context for uh, whether it's the I don't I don't know what you would even call them like the worship pastors the, the is that what you can I just use that word in general for people who understand that term so, so, uh, yeah yeah uh, how, how much like yeah liberty and freedom would they have even in that space to to speak about about the words and the flow and the uh, or is it just we're singing the song stand up um, does that make sense is there is there any kind of you know like in, so in some traditions let me just elaborate. You may have like on the furthest end of the spectrum, more Pentecostal traditions where those those worship pastors almost act like mini preachers with guitars in their hand or mics, you know, and they're singing along. And it's like, wow, I just heard a sermon in between that song. Uh, that, yeah. That's on one end of the spectrum. So in other churches would be people stand up there, they sing the songs, they conduct the choir, and then they sit down. Um, you've done the work ahead of time in your preparation, but how much work does the do the to the parishioners congregation that they experience uh, within their leaders up there or is it is just you that gets to speak to that so sometimes so no one really gets to hijack the theme yeah uh, or derail it or get you know presbyterians don't get emotional so don't get excited don't <laughs> no uh, check yourself if you think the spirit's moving it's not it's what you want to say but anyway um the so we will often put music notes in the bulletin that talk about why we've done something or what something means or why the lyrics were chosen or hey this is hard or we thought this was too difficult but you could sing along because we really you know whatever um 
we will say we're going to sing uh, Peace Like a River, and it is these 15 congregants' favorite hymn, and we'll just share. So we do try to make comments that builds community or understanding in the bulletin itself. We don't often speak to it, but never say never. Yeah, but you're you're also under under an assumption that people are, if you plan appropriately enough, people are... I don't want to use the word smart enough as if it's an intellectual thing, um, but they're, you know, we're all adults and we're experiencing this together. So take whatever you need and go with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's so funny. Cause I think we, the, this other part of me in certain traditions wants like everything to be explained again, you know, like, well, no, no, let it be just, just put it out there. But let's say that someone comes up after the worship service and says, yeah. you know, the music is really having an effect and I don't know how you, do that. I don't know how you guys work it out. That might be the catalyst right back to the leadership to do more expositing on why, how mm -hmm. that component of the workshop is built. So you get this nice feedback loop. Not only do you get affirmation and criticism, but you get, you get clues about what that workshop needs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Janelle, I know music's a big part of your life. Yeah. You want to add anything there? Well, I'm just curious, is your peer wanting to learn and grow in piano coming out of um, kind of some interpersonal integration with music? Um, that's a really great question. Um, I made my children learn piano, I think in part because I wanted to learn it. And so when they came of age, and I think my bio says they're young, but they're 25, 23, and 21. And so when they left, I took up piano. Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, I'm, you know, it's also very different. It's not in my head in the same way. And I, what I enjoy most is the theory and the technique. And there's a lot that um, my piano teacher will often talk about my preaching when she encourages me to mature musically. So she's a very gifted teacher and um, I enjoy being with her definitely more than my husband likes to hear me play. Well, just keep practicing. We all the, know that's part of it. The pandemic did do a number on me. I was, you know, better than a year without a choir. So I sing oh. in the choir now. And I think, I think it, it didn't traumatize me, but it affected me mm -hmm. to be without the music. There was something very ridiculous about our style of music is to have a choir and all yeah. that. And there was something really ridiculous in trying to do worship without that. Yeah, that's really hard. Mm -hmm. I, I've recently had, um, I've had some issues with music um, and participation because of some of the church wounds I've had. I've played piano since I was five. I was a voice major in college. And I've recently uh, gone, gone through an experience where it's been made very clear to me that music needs to be part of my daily life, oh. whether whether I'm doing doing anything with that or not, but that I need to be sitting at the piano and doing that for my own uh, well-being and integration. And so uh, that's kind of where that question comes from. Because I, I think we, especially as church musicians, I think that it can become stagnant or just part of the, 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 the church making machine. And keeping it personal and fresh and responsive it has new meaning for me I think that's so well said mm -hmm. thanks well as much as we could sit with this for the whole rest of the time um the next thing you talked about here is um liturgy that it's written from a local context with a pastoral and prophetic heart that intends to provide provocative clues that culminate in the homiletical task or sacrament. Mm -hmm. You want to unpack that for us? Um, what component of that would be most helpful to unpack first? Ryan, do you want to? Yeah, yeah. I would, I would say that that local context, because, yeah. you know, you speak about uh, homiletics as conversational as well. So that, that to me is intriguing. I know everybody comes from their own local context, but that's, hey, that we're, we're that's yeah, <laughs> it's sort of a it's sort of a rugged bias that mm -hmm. part of hiring clergy is that they in part are going to be authors of the worship experience. So back to plug and play, there's lots of mm -hmm. resources you can buy that plug in. Yeah. 
but writing it has got a little bit of agony in it. Uh, you've got to kind of think of your people as you're writing. Um, there are things that are tenable in one community that are not tenable in another. Um, so I, I think that that writing is important, even if uh, one experiences it as more rudimentary than what is published, the local is privileged. Mm. And, and it doesn't have to be the pastor. There are lots of really eloquent people. Um, there are lots of people who are fundamentally in their hearts, poets, and they are not formally educated. Um, the local community has a, a tremendous amount of resource, whether they are in the rural communities where I served in Kansas or in cities or in metropolitan areas. And so if we believe that a cake tastes different if it's made from scratch than from a box, this is part of the logic that I'm using, mm -hmm. that there's energy in that liturgy when it's been produced from the uh, priesthood of all believers. Um, yeah, that's that's it's interesting because that's that's a that's very Baptist. And yet, ironically, and I'm not saying all, but in the Baptist tradition, the the authoritative lead pastor, senior pastor locks themselves in their own room and writes their sermon. Uh, and it's, and it is a top-down approach. Well, yet it is, yet it's, a, go, go ahead. Not. Yeah. I mean, I might, but, I might be more like that. Yeah. But you, but you also, you are, uh, you, you love your community enough to, you're, you have them. Now I'm not saying that other people don't, but you're, you're with them. You do, you do yoga with them. You have, I mean, like, so you're very, the fact that even that, that 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 in and of itself. I mean, you're you're not just in your office and not just in a pulpit. And I think some so on so often in many churches, these teaching pastors are they kind of just lock themselves up and just write sermons by themselves and never. Do you really I mean, believe that? Do you really believe I, that? Do I? Yeah. Uh, I've seen it. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I know. Yeah, you and both I believe it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think if that's true, I think they long for something different. Yeah. I. So this is funny. My my wife would always, um, she could always tell when I, when she would come home back in the day before we had kids and I worked full-time in, in churches and, and she would say, uh, you didn't, she would, she would know instantly as, as they do. Uh, <laughs> I'd say it's, it's usually, uh, the female spouses that know this, uh, men were a little bit slower and she said, you didn't, you didn't have any real meetings today, did you? And I'm like, how could you tell? She's like, you, you're defeated. You're so I, I, I'm also an extrovert. So, but if I'm not with people, like, I, how could I ever give them a word? If you know what I mean? I mean, but perhaps some people do a really good job of like, I don't need the people. I, I guess from what I'm hearing from well, you, though, like, it's you yeah. can't just create sermons in a vacuum. It's that's that's. I don't. That's I don't believe, fundamentally. I don't believe anybody does that. Yeah. And and I do think there are lots of things spoken that are not a sermon. Hmm. Yeah. They're not, well, let's, let's say that differently, not word. Can you define that for us? Yeah, like I mean, what I, that means to you? Yes. I think in part, what you're doing up there is giving your best effort into a space where spoken, um, conceptual, storied sharings enter into another space that we understand to be the living word of God. And I guess when I define that, the living word of God you know, as demonstrated in Christ, arrives to empower people's living. And, and that in and of itself glorifies God. But you both look like that's a very disappointing answer. No, not disappointing. I, I think, honestly, what just, which, what just popped in my head was in the tradition I come from, then that must be followed up by an altar call. So I can actually see that it got to you. Like just like expecting that you're yeah, going to car yeah, carry all, something. We're all so tempted on the quantification. Right. It's a real problem. Yeah. 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 Everybody's got the problem. I take attendance on Mondays. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think uh, going a little, I guess what I've learned, I went from this conservative evangelical tradition and have, have been in some more mainline tradition worship settings. And I think the expectation in the main line is is that I'm I'm going to give you this and I'm going to expect that some you're going to carry something out of out of here with you from that even if it's only ten minutes. Yes, where but I, see, yeah, but you see that's that's a wrong orientation. Okay, because the the 
the church really needs to understand as Christ understood that people arrive with the material. They arrive with it. And then it is the gentle love and attention to that material that reveals potential. You sound like you're actually trusting your people to oh, care yes. for their spirit. Well, what are you doing? Well, like... why would why would I not why would I not trust them when the narratives out of scripture, Christ is so trusting of what the disciples will do. There's virtually no instruction. There's a great deal of trust. There's frustration, there's limitation, there's betrayal, there's all sorts of things. But fundamentally, if you don't get too offended, it, it, it is trust that's happening. Yeah. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Jeez, God, yes. Feed my sheep. Go do it. Stop. And in some ways, I really believe this. Stop focusing so much on me as an object and be the subject for me that moves out into the world and and demonstrates care and possibilities for other human beings. I don't think there's anything wrong trusting most people who have not been neglected, abused, mistreated. I mean, there's there's exceptions, right? But most people can be trusted and they're very competent. We had in a in an Easter prayer, we are competent and smart enough to carry forward the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, and I, I think where that's hard for me, and maybe Ryan feels this too from, from his tradition, but that comes with a list of rules. Like, well, people... sure, I'll trust you, but don't drink, don't gamble, don't dance, don't do this, don't do that, don't well, do this. Or don't hurt yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's the good intention behind all those things. But don't... it's not, not yeah. in my experience, it wasn't taught that way, not at yeah. all. There was no trust that I could make those decisions on my own. Um, I needed to make sure that my rule book was all in place. And then maybe Jesus could peek out of there once in a while. Yeah. But you see that, so you, you're going to have to check me because I've, I've got this opinion about, no, I, and I know the experience is really different. No, I love it. I think it's the way it should be. I think we wouldn't be having some of these cultural battles that we're having right now that are splitting the church apart. If we, carried Christ with us in the way that you were talking about and trusted ourselves to love people who are different than us. And you see, I'm very strategic because if I trust you, the onus is on you. Right. And if I don't trust you, the onus is on me. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not that. Which that has a huge pastoral burden as well, because psychological cost to pastor. Yep. Yep. Wow. Really, if I were going to say any of that better, I might revisit it and say, Janelle and Ryan, will you let me take back what I just said? And I'll say that if I don't trust you, the onus, there's really a codependent relationship that's built. If I do trust you, the onus is really on us together to figure out how to do what we perceive to be a divine work in the world. Mm-hmm. So I like that second way better. Yeah. But that that's that's such a powerful word to your community. Uh Um, One that I think many, many, especially American Christians never hear. Um, They're never given that uh, permission to go be Christ in the world that they're in, in the way that it fits into their context, into their experience. Um, Well, I don't want to be a denier. But I would just push back and say, I don't think that's the story that gets told about the church, but I believe that there are pastors doing just that. There are some, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's just not the sensational word on the church. Right, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So Leslie, as we we wrap up here, um, I am curious just specifically, some of your upcoming themes that you have, uh, that are being addressed in your worship services, if if uh, if you can. I mean, although by the time this is released, yeah. you'll you'll have already done it, so it's not like yeah, maybe yeah. it's not like you're uh, you know we're not giving people the future yet, but this will be the past when they get it. Yeah, no, we're going to be doing um, the stages of faith development in the Apostle Paul and the epistles um, that starts this week. I'm really excited about that, and the hope of that series is that people can experience. Um, you know, Paul went through some deconstruction and Paul went through some 
some real agony and some real limitation that he talked about his blindness and that sort of thing. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about, uh, speculate a little bit about his development and then speculate a little bit about our own. We'll be doing a series uh, over the summer on uh, spirituality in movies. Um, movies often almost always use religion as a foil uh, for for goodness. Mm -hmm. um, and so do you have any movies in mind right now? Yes, but I don't I can't remember them. I saw, I saw oh, every year I see every film that's nominated for best picture. So if you, if yeah, you want to pick got, my brain later, I love I love film. I was a film major before I was a religion major. Oh yeah, no, you yeah. should definitely talk to Chris and I. We're going to be doing it dialectically. Um, nice. So uh, he'll lead um, he'll lead one of the four Sundays if we're not doing it six Sundays, and I'll lead the other three. But we'll be talking together uh, through the sermon about it, and the congregation will be invited to watch the movie. So we're trying to find things that people don't have to buy. But anyway, we'll see. We'll learn a lot because people will maybe. Well, I, I think this, this, the, so this year was uh, one of the best years in, in the Academy, at least. I, I don't think there was a bad Best Picture nomination. Now, there were two that were questionable as far as why were they nominated, but it's because of money. Uh, but all 10 were really okay. great. Yeah. 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 Well, you're really making me want to find it on my desk. <laughs> Um, but anyway, maybe, maybe I'll find it here anyway. So that's, what's up for May and June. And so that, that's nice. So you have, so do you feel like the, in the summer months, is there a little bit of a, it's, it's more playful because it's, it's a playful time of, of it's a season where, I mean, I know you're not, I'm not, I'm not saying you're taking it off. I'm not taking like, oh, let's just blow off and do a movie Thanks series. For reading, Thanks for reading my face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we need seasons. It can't all be heavy. So, uh, it can't all be like. Uh, I think we're. I think we're pretty playful all year long, but yeah. I do think we pull against the stereotypes. So we'll be a, an adult Christian formation uh, class. Will be on architecture and sacred space, and we'll be looking at architecture in our community and ecclesial church architecture and architecture in nature over 12 weeks. Our kids will be traveling throughout Waco. So they'll gather at the church, they'll load up into a bus and they'll go to the river or to you know, another site um, and learn about church as more than the building. I love that. Yeah, so that's a pre-pandemic favorite that we're going back to. So we do work hard all summer, but I think our playfulness is all year long because I think you know, there's enough serious yeah. in everyday life. Church can be a little playful yeah, and be a, a place of, of rest. Yeah. Except the workshop model sometimes does not let you rest like you want. Yeah. To. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. That's fair. Anyway, people yeah. know what to do. You guys, this has been so fun. Thank you for, and, and again, right yeah. for the invitation to be at the pub with you guys. It was a, such a warm crowd. Thank you. It's it is uh, as I say at Chick Fil A. It's our pleasure, actually. So, and I mean that, meaning that I don't think they always mean it at Chick Fil A, but I do. <laughs> you should always assume they mean it. <laughs> have you ever tried just to get them to say my pleasure multiple times, like just to have a little? Like, how many times can I get them to say it? I actually oh, thank don't you. Know. Oh, thank you. I feel like oh, thank aged, you. I feel like I've aged out of fast food, so I actually never. Yeah, I actually my my kids don't really do it anymore, and uh, that used to be a big thing, and. I don't know. Yeah, we don't. We, we haven't had Chick Fil A in a long time either. I'll I'll need to go though and see. Well, get uh yes, we'll have you back if you'll if you'll come back. So appreciate yeah. it. Thanks so much for listening to the Brew Theology podcast and our conversation with Leslie King. If you liked this episode, please share and rate it online. If you'd like to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org, at Brew Theology on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and at Brew underscore Theology on X. So thank you so much for joining us. We hope you have a great day. Cheers. Cheers.